Doctor Who Short Trips. The Last Days by Evan Pritchard. Read by Dwayne Bunny. These zealots have offended against the laws of Rome and our emperor, the doctor called out across the massed ranks of legionaries. He waited briefly for the buzz of excitement to die down before continuing. The gods will surely punish them for their temerity, turning flames of righteous anger on these Jewish rebels. And I can promise you this, tomorrow... Masada will fall, and the long siege will be over. Barbara leaned back against the building from which she had emerged and regarded the scene before her. A wide space dotted with buildings. Marble. The ancient world. Perhaps. And there were people. Hundreds of people all focusing on something out of her sight. She could smell smoke and the sky was lit with a sullen red glow. The people seemed agitated, some shouting and others whispering, all in motion without actually going anywhere. So where was she? And how had she got here? There were memories, she realised. Yet another landing in the temperamental TARDIS. Earth, the doctor had said, and she'd felt a surge of hope. She'd looked at Ian to share the feeling, but he'd been frowning past her at the ship's screen. She'd known immediately that this wouldn't be the time they reached home. A desert landscape outside. A walk through it in the clean, early morning sunshine. Even then, the heat had been stifling hanging almost tangibly in the air like thick folds of fabric. Soon, they'd found the sea, a strange, flat, dead blue. Susan had dipped her finger in the oily water and looked at the bleak mountains around them, which, like the sea, seemed incapable of supporting any form of life. Not Earth, then? she'd suggested tentatively but the doctor had shaken his head impatiently, and Barbara had realised that she was doing the same. Israel, she'd said, at the same time that the doctor had muttered, Palestine. They'd looked at each other, and the doctor had shrugged. Time travel rendered them both potentially correct. Then, the doctor had seen the soldiers approaching them. Judea, he'd said with certainty. They'd been caught in a skirmish. On one side had been Roman soldiers, she recalled now. Ian had stood by her with his usual fierce loyalty, but the doctor and Susan had quickly been lost in the confusion. She touched her side and flinched. Of course. She had been injured. Ian had carried her from the fray. Had they met up with some other refugees? She couldn't remember. All her memories after the injury were hazy. There'd been a long journey, a mountain, and finally a bed. And as she'd floated in and out of consciousness, Ian had always been there, comforting her and begging her not to give up, not to leave him. So where was he now? The flames licked at the night sky. Above them, heat haze obscured the clarity of the stars in the desert air. The Doctor was a dark, slightly stooped shape outlined by fire. A gust of wind blew the flames nearer, and the line of soldiers facing the fortress retreated another pace. Susan could see the legionaries hesitating. 
caught between two impulses, fear of the unnatural fire and obedience to their commander. It seemed that fear was gaining the upper hand. The zealots have summoned spirits to control the fire, said a sour, greying man, the oldest of the tribunes. The other soldiers mumbled their assent, and as if these words had given them license, began to retreat down the ramp that scaled the mountainside. Flavius Silva, governor, commander of the 10th Legion, shouted at them to stand firm, but his words did little to slow their retreat, and soon the fierce heat coming from the burning walls forced him also to back away. For the first time, Susan saw a look of helpless defeat on his face. During the weeks in which she and the doctor had insinuated themselves into his camp, she had seen this man's confidence gradually eroded, his certainty of victory blunted by the persistence and ingenuity of Masada's defenders. Tonight, he had ordered the walls to be set on fire, only to see the flames turn from the fortress and blow back in the faces of the weary Roman soldiers. She saw now his final acceptance of the fact that the rebels had beaten him. It was clearly a bitter realisation. The doctor was also studying the governor, his face etched with displeasure and just a hint of alarm. No, no, he muttered. This really won't do. Won't do at all. Jerking into sudden motion, he stepped up to the soldiers, arms raised crookedly above his head. With his cloak draped over him, he looked rather like a theatrical ghost, and Susan had to raise a hand to her mouth to stifle a giggle. The doctor, seemingly unaware of his own absurdity, spoke with calm authority. Retreat is absolutely forbidden. The soldiers hesitated. The old man didn't command the same respect as Flavius Silver. Why should they listen to him and face the furious fire which had turned so mysteriously against them? Barbara started to make her way through the clusters of agitated people to try to find Ian. The crowd comprised men, women and children, all simply dressed in tunics and sandals. As she neared the front, she saw that men predominated. Soon she was the only woman and she realised that she was beginning to attract attention. Joab! A man beside her shouted. Joab, your wife's here! Others took up the cry and she found a path clearing for her. She saw two men standing in front of her, their faces cast into shadow by the blazing fire which consumed the wooden wall behind them. One of them was obviously young, although he carried himself with the authority of age. He was dark-skinned, and his hawk-like features were rendered sterner still by the jagged scars which disfigured them. The other man was Ian, who was now smiling delightedly at her. But those flames were so close. Suddenly, she knew exactly where and when she was. She felt like an actress who had stumbled on stage for the last act of a tragedy. You must move away! She shouted, surprised when her voice came out as a rusty croak. It's not safe. You have to move back. Ian looked almost comically startled, as if he'd been prepared for an entirely different conversation with her. No, he said after a moment. This is our chance. He turned to the man beside him, as if continuing an ongoing argument. Listen to me, Eliezer. We can take advantage of this. If we attack now, while they're retreating anyway, we can drive them right off the mountain. Barbara saw him swallow, as if uncomfortable with the words he was about to utter. This wind is a... a sign... from God. It can't be natural. Have you ever seen a wind change direction that suddenly? It was blowing this way when the Romans lit the fire. But something turned it back. Oh, Ian, thought Barbara, what are you doing? It's too late to try rewriting the ending. 
But then she heard the growing murmur of the men behind her, and she realised that he was close to convincing them. No! she shouted. More power in her voice now. You mustn't do that! Ian turned to her with a look of confusion. Barbara, you've been unconscious for weeks. You don't understand what's going on. This could be our last chance. There was an answer to that. One the doctor would have been proud of. About respecting history and not interfering. But she couldn't give it here, in front of all these people. She was a history teacher. She knew what was supposed to happen next. But how could she make sure it did happen? By telling them what happened next, she realised with perfect circular logic. A hush had descended over the crowd. It occurred to her that her return from near death had given her a certain authority. The calculating part of her mind she didn't like very much told her she could use this. Why do you think I've been healed? She said finally. I have a message for you. Step away from the walls and wait. I promise that the flames will turn round again. I know for certain that you aren't meant to attack. The man called Eliezer looked at her intently, then turned and waved the men back from the wall. Barbara moved with them, but Eliezer was prevented from retreating by Ian, who grabbed his arm. Don't do this, he said. If we wait, we might lose the opportunity. Eliezer was about to reply when they all felt the first faint stirrings of a breeze blowing away from the wall. Eleazar grasped Ian's arm, pulling him towards Barbara and the other men. Then, as they ran, the flames that ate the wooden walls wavered for a moment before bending inwards and swooping down on their fleeing forms. The men surrounding her let out a deep groan, and, for a terrifying moment, Barbara thought that they had been caught in the fire. Then, coughing and beating sparks from their clothing, they emerged, Eliezer dragging Ian, who even now seemed reluctant to go. As soon as they were clear, Eliezer turned and addressed the crowd. A sign has been given. The Lord does not intend us to leave here. There was a moment of hesitation, of almost preternatural stillness, while the wind fell to nothing and then it picked up again, blowing away from the soldiers and taking the flames with it. Susan saw the dour tribune flash the doctor a brilliant smile, generous now with his good humour. The legionaries let out a raucous cheer and began to charge back up the ramp towards the burning fortress. Stop, you men! Silver called out, striding towards them, no hint of the earlier sense of defeat in his bearing. There's no need to hurry now. Let the fire burn out the defences. Go back and prepare the battering ram. His smile was predatory. In the morning, we'll take Masada. Then these fools will see Roman justice at work. Susan grasped the doctor's sleeve and dragged him down the ramp towards the camp at the base of the mountain. When she was sure that they were out of earshot of the Roman soldiers, she spun round to face him. What are you doing, Grandfather? Why didn't you just let them run away? Then we could have rescued Barbara and Ian and left this horrible place. The doctor harumphed and shook his head at her. Rescue them? It's not Ian and Barbara who need rescuing, child. It's history that needs saving from Chesterton's meddling. Susan took a step back, surprised by the old man's vehemence. But what's Ian done? We don't even know for certain that he's in there. The doctor grimaced, turned away from her and began to stride towards their hut. Susan was forced to trot at his heels, 
just like a puppy, she thought crossly. As soon as he knew that she was following him, the doctor continued. History must be preserved. I thought you knew that, my dear. I do know that, Susan replied. I just didn't know there was any history here that needed preserving. That caused the doctor to halt in his tracks and let out a little of displeasure. Do you know how many Roman soldiers have been killed by the zealots in the last two months? Hmm? I... I don't know. I suppose it must be about a hundred, Susan stuttered, wrong-footed by his change of subject. One hundred and seven, he announced firmly. And there are no indications so far that the rebels are going to slow down. Susan was confused. I don't see why that bothers you. The doctor looked at her pityingly. But we know the eventual outcome. The Roman historian Josephus recorded events here most precisely. And the 20th century archaeological dig was very thorough indeed. Do you know, they even found the lots drawn by... He trailed off and an expression of guilt settled on his face. He tried to distract attention from it with his usual bluster. These attacks on the Romans must be Chesterton's doing. They shouldn't be happening. Good grief, child. The Romans shouldn't be on the point of giving up. The rebels should be... They should be just waiting. Grandfather, Susan said carefully, beginning to piece things together. Just what is going to happen to Ian and Barbara? The doctor looked away. What happens to the Jewish rebels, Grandfather? she demanded. There was silence for what seemed like minutes. When the doctor finally met her eyes, the compassion she saw in his face was more frightening than his earlier evasions. Two women survived. It was their testimony that formed part of the account of the siege that we now have. Susan didn't miss the implications of what the doctor wasn't saying. Only two survivors? Both women? She grasped at the most slender of hopes. Could one of them be Barbara? The doctor turned and pushed his way into their hut. Maybe, my child. It's always possible. All this time, Susan thought, he's been letting me think that we're here to rescue our friends, when actually all he wanted to do was to stop them. The tears that welled in the corners of her eyes dried in the desert air before they could fall. Ian watched the activity around him. It seemed aimless yet frantic, as if, in their last hours of freedom, the defenders were sure that they should be doing something, but weren't quite sure what. Eleazar appeared oblivious to their needs, talking quietly to his lieutenants. Ian knew he should be with them. After all, wasn't he Eleazar's right-hand man? When he and Barbara had first arrived, they'd been mistrusted as possible spies. But then he had masterminded the first raid on the Romans' camp below, and his status had changed. Now they called him Joab the Brave. He knew that Barbara was watching him, but he couldn't bear to face her. All these weeks he had waited by her sickbed, terrified that she would never rise from it and now her first act on waking was to oppose him. The rational part of his mind told him that she had done what she did because she knew something he didn't. He didn't want to listen to it. He didn't want to think that he'd become involved in a conflict whose outcome was already decided, and which he was powerless to influence. He wasn't quite sure when the siege of Masada had become more than just something he was passing through on his way to somewhere else, but it had. He had really believed he could save these people. Tonight, he'd been so close. Then, Barbara had woken up, and suddenly it was all just history again. Impersonal and inevitable. He looked around him, 
there were Joshua and Rivka, with their baby Yitshak. He was only five months old, born in Masada. They were watching Eliezer and his men. So was Daniel, a grizzled veteran who claimed that he'd killed over a hundred Romans in his career as a freedom fighter. Little Avraham and Yosef, the twins, were running between the adults' legs. The tension they sensed transformed through the filter of childhood into playful energy. Barbara might have read the history books, but he knew these people's names. He imagined the wide top of the mountain silent, the morning sun shining on the hump shapes which littered it and the dull red stains on the yellow sand. He imagined the smell of death. And then he imagined the screams of the women as the soldiers began their work. No, he wouldn't allow it to happen. There were now two ways on and off the tabletop mountain which was home to the fortress of Masada. When the Romans had first begun their siege, there had been only the winding path which climbed its eastern face. Too narrow to accommodate more than one man, it was safe from assault by the ranks of a Roman legion. But rather than be deterred, the Romans had decided to make another way. A huge ramp that ran from the ground to the fortress walls a thousand feet above. The ramp had taken many months to build, and the labour of countless slaves. It was a work of brute strength and relentless, stolid determination. Ian had come to think that it, rather than any of the great marvels in Italy, ought to stand as the ultimate monument to the sheer bloody-mindedness of the Roman Empire. So now the ramp was finished and the imperial wolf was at the door. But the other path was still there. Although defeat was inevitable, perhaps escape was still possible. At last, Ian turned to Barbara. She wasn't looking at him anymore. Instead, she was studying Eleazar, an expectant look on her face. Feeling Ian's eyes on her, she switched her gaze to him and began to reach out to him, then hesitated as if unsure of her reception. I'm so sorry, Ian. Shall I tell you why? No, he said roughly. She looked hurt and swayed slightly. He reminded himself that she had been close to death only a few days ago, and spoke more gently. No. I know you must know what happens. What happened here. But... I'd never heard of Masada until I came here. I imagine I've been behaving in a way the doctor would heartily disapprove of. She smiled slightly at that. You don't need to tell me we've lost, that I've been fighting the inevitable these last few weeks. Don't worry, I'm not planning some hopeless last stand. I was thinking about getting some of these people away while it's still dark. I'm not sure we can save everyone, and maybe history needs the Romans to find someone here. But I don't see why I can't rescue one or two. He saw an expression forming on her face that he didn't want to recognise as pity. Barbara, there are almost a thousand people here. Don't tell me history will care if some of them escape. Ian, she began, and then hesitated. Before she could resume... They were both startled by a series of dull clanging sounds. It was Eliezer's lieutenants clashing swords against shields to get the crowd's attention. Ian turned back to Barbara, but she was staring fixedly at Eliezer. Listen to what he has to say, she said softly. It was amazing that a thousand people could be so silent but the attention focused on Eliezer was so intense that even the children sensed it and quietened their games. When Eliezer raised his arms, every eye was on him. My friends, we long ago resolved never to be servants of the Romans, or to any other than God himself. The time has come to put that resolution to the test. Low murmurs of assent began to rumble through the crowd. 
edged with a kind of fearful anticipation. These people knew what was coming next. Ian began to think that he did too. We were the very first to revolt against the Romans and we are the last still fighting against them. It's clear that we'll be taken before night falls again. The crowd growled. Whether in denial or agreement, Ian couldn't tell. But we can still die bravely. We hoped that we alone of all Israel might remain free. Even across the crowd, Ian could see that Eliezer's eyes turned to Barbara. But God has shown us that our hopes were in vain, our arrogance a sin. Let us receive our punishment for this, not from the Romans, but from God, by our own hands. And then he outlined his plan. It was almost perfect in its simplicity. Every man would kill the members of his own family. Eleazar's lieutenants would then kill all the other men, before drawing lots to choose one of them to kill the rest. Finally, that man would take his own life. Not one soul left alive for the Romans to find. Ian expected a howl of outrage from the crowd. He was so sure it would come that he found himself opening his mouth to join in. But there was only a low murmur of inquiry, quickly silenced. Eleazar had them. They liked the idea, Ian realised. It appealed to their sense of destiny and purpose. The same sense that had kept them fighting long after the rest of their people had given up. He turned to Barbara and saw that she was mouthing along to Eliezer's words. He fought against feelings of impotent rage. This is madness, Barbara, he whispered fiercely. You're not telling me they went through with this? Yes, they did. And history recorded all of it. Archaeologists even found the lots they drew to decide which of the men should kill the rest. Barbara had always been a compassionate woman, and her face showed grief at these strangers' deaths. But it was the sadness of someone reading a book with an unhappy ending, someone at one removed from reality. Ian set his jaw in a stubborn line. For a brief moment, he hated Barbara for being right. I'll talk to them. Look at them. His gesture encompassed the milling mass of people, with their restless children and their shell-shocked expressions. They don't want to die. If I give them an alternative, they'll take it. Barbara grasped his arm. For goodness sake, Ian, don't you see that there is no alternative? He wrenched himself from her hand. Don't give me that nonsense about preserving history. Look at what you tried to do with the Aztecs. You're not the doctor. Don't start talking like him. She ran a hand through her thick brown hair, pushing a sweep of it back from her face. He realised that she was also using the gesture to covertly wipe away tears. I'm not talking about history, Ian. What Eliezer says is right. Terrible as it is, suicide is is their best option. How can you say that? How can you not see it? She was angry now too, her face flushed with rage and hurt. What do you imagine will happen to these people if the Romans capture them? Ian looked away, uncomfortably reminded of his own fantasy of the fall of Masada. He could think of nothing to say. The crowds in the central square were thinning as the men slowly led their families to their individual rooms. To his left, Avraham and Yosef were trailing disconsolately behind their mother, annoyed that their play had been disrupted and not quite understanding the reason. Unseen by them, tears ran down their mother's face, yet at the same time her expression was one of almost unnatural peace. 
Their father was nowhere to be seen. Probably already in their house, Ian thought, preparing himself. How do you do that? he wondered. How do you prepare for something like this? He must have been standing there for some time. The square was almost empty. Across its length, Eleazar was watching him. Ian imagined his eyes gleaming with fanatical certainty. There was a coppery smell carried on the light desert breeze. He could hear crying, high and scared from the children, with the occasional deeper sob. But there were no screams. How could so many people die so quietly? He realised that Barbara's hand had clasped his shoulder. She was making meaningless sounds of comfort. Why was she doing that? Ian, I... I know how dreadful this is, she said gently, touching his cheek. He hadn't realised that tears were streaming down his face. We have to go inside, Ian. Eleazar's watching us, and I think he's becoming suspicious. When he didn't respond, she took him by the hand and led him into the simple room that had been home for the last few weeks. Once inside, she pulled a heavy curtain across the doorway, shutting them in their own private world. She sat him down on one of the beds, as if I were the invalid, Ian thought, and turned to face him. Her expression was unexpectedly firm. Let me tell you what the Romans would do to any prisoners, she said. Ian shook his head. What was the point of carrying on the argument? She'd already won. But Barbara wouldn't be put off. The men would be crucified, she said. It can take days of agony to die like that. She sighed and took his hand in hers. The women and children would be sold into slavery, if they were lucky. And I've been there, Ian. I've felt that fear, that hopelessness. Ian swallowed painfully and finally raised his head to meet her eyes. I shan't argue with you, but I've always believed that where there's life, there's hope. Where would we be if we'd given up each time everything seemed lost? Barbara smiled wryly. We wouldn't be here now. I don't think this is the same, though. There's no doctor to rescue us. No magic ship to take us away. Death is the only freedom these people have left. She raised her hand to his lips. One day, it may be the only freedom we have left. I'd like to think that if necessary, you would do the same for me. Ian pulled back from her. No, don't be absurd. How can you possibly think I'd do that? Even if I asked you to? I know what the life of a Roman slave is like, Ian. I don't think I could bear it. Ian knelt by her feet and placed a hand over hers. No, Barbara. I won't ever let that happen to you. I might not be able to save these people. Maybe the doctor's precious history won't let me. But I'll always save you. He realised that he could hear footsteps approaching their room. In one swift movement, he drew his dagger and swept its wickedly sharp blade along the flesh of his inner arm. He saw her eyes widen as, for a fraction of a second, she was unsure of his intentions. The blood flowed freely, and he allowed it to fall on the white sheets, and then, giving her an apologetic grimace, on to the rough cotton of Barbara's dress. Hurriedly, he urged Barbara to lie down on the bed, then pulled up the blood-stained sheet until it covered her completely. She wouldn't bear close inspection, he decided, and rushed to the curtain before the person outside could enter. At the last moment, he remembered the incriminating cut on his arm and stopped to pull his cloak over it, wincing as the rough material scraped the open wound. 
The curtain was thrust aside and Eleazar strode into the room. His eyes flicked between Ian and the shrouded form on the bed. Ian felt his heartbeat quickening. He desperately wanted to turn around to see if Barbara's breathing was visible from the doorway, but he knew he couldn't. A man in his position wouldn't turn around to study his wife's corpse. At least his expression probably looked sufficiently stricken. He didn't know what else this day had to throw at him, but he was fairly sure he couldn't take much more. Eleazar's gaze had settled on the bed. Ian could see a muscle working beneath the jawline of his scarred face, and when the other man finally looked away, Ian was sure that they had been found out. But Eleazar simply walked up to him and flung an arm over his shoulder. Come, Joab, he said. You don't want to remain here. Ian nodded wordlessly and allowed himself to be led from the room. Outside, the fire that was consuming the walls was dying at last, its glow replaced by the first light of dawn. He had thought that he was all out of arguments, but Eleazar tapped a whole new reservoir of them. There should have been another way, he said. Eleazar was quiet for a moment, his gaze sweeping over the marble buildings and the small patches of soil and sparse crops. These are the last days he said eventually. The temple has been destroyed. Jerusalem burned. We were the last. Isn't that exactly why we should keep on fighting for as long as we can? Ian was surprised to hear Eleazar's laugh, a deep, rich sound, free of bitterness. Joab, you were aptly named. You don't understand the meaning of defeat. You've kept hope alive when we thought there was none left. We are all in your debt for that. But it is over. His near-black eyes squinted into the morning sun. The Messiah will come to Zion. We'll have new life in his time. But this life is over. And by doing this, we will rob the Romans of their victory. Ian knew that his own laugh was far less carefree. I would have said we're just making their victory even easier. As he spoke, he became aware of a strange, grumbling, squealing sound from behind the fortress gates. The Romans were bringing up their battering ram. It really was almost over. Eleazar had also heard the sound. His mouth thinned. If you think that, you don't understand Flavia Silva at all he said. Now go, Joab. There are men who have said farewell to their families and are waiting for your sword. Join my other lieutenants in freeing them. He was gone before Ian could protest, could tell him that he was asking the impossible. But then he thought about all the men sitting in those buildings with their dead wives and children. I'd like to think that if necessary you would do the same for me. Ian knew what he'd want in their place. Feeling as though he'd lost the ability to make decisions, he entered the nearest house. He paused, leaning against the broad doorway, when he saw what was inside. It was such a ridiculously domestic scene. There were three pairs of sandals scattered over the floor, two of them very small. An iron cooking pot sat in the corner, if it hadn't been for the red puddle forming under the bed, he might have thought that the woman and children lying on it were just sleeping. The twins lay curled up in their mother's arms. One of them wore an expression of total peace, the other one of uncomprehending fear. Of course, they couldn't both have been killed at the same time. One must have seen what had happened to the other. The mother's face was buried in the sheets, Sitting on the floor by them, clasping his wife's hand, was their murderer. He was already dead. Ian hadn't been the first of Eleazar's men to visit the room. Ian felt his legs weaken, and he sank to the earth floor. He realised that he had drawn his knife, 
but he knew now that there was no way he could use it. He tipped his head back to rest against the cool marble of the walls and closed his eyes. It was over, and there was nothing more he could do. Many minutes later, he felt a hand gently touch his shoulder. He couldn't bring himself to open his eyes. Come, Joab, said Eleazar's firm voice. It's almost done. We eleven alone are left. Soon there will be only one. We must draw lots to decide which of us that will be. Ian didn't hear him leaving, but his presence was so strong that, when he left, the void in the room was almost palpable. Carefully keeping his gaze averted from the bodies in the corner, he rose to his feet and stumbled out. The sun had finally cleared the distant mountains, and the light was painfully bright. There was fire to accompany the sunlight again. The men had set their dwellings ablaze. Nothing would be left behind for the Romans. Eleazar was seated in the centre of the courtyard, surrounded by his lieutenants. All but me, Ian thought numbly as he went to take his place among the last defenders of Masada. Susan watched as Silver paced the length of his room for what must have been the hundredth time. He was filled with a restless energy, a horribly happy anticipation of the coming battle. The doctor had brought her with him to see the commander at least half an hour ago. Presumably, the doctor had intended to say something to the other man, but as soon as they'd entered his room, Silver had begun to run through his plans for the morning in an almost childlike babble of excitement. The normally loquacious doctor hadn't been able to get a word in edgeways. Many of the Jews will die in the fight, Silver was saying now, but I think we can assume there'll be some survivors. Rome will want some rebels who can be publicly seen to pay the price for their rebellion. We would have lined the streets of Jerusalem with their crosses. His lips twitched. But the streets of Jerusalem aren't what they used to be. Ah, yes, the doctor finally managed. Survivors. That's precisely what I wish to discuss with you. Silver looked startled, as if he'd actually forgotten that he had an audience. You have your own plans for the survivors? He sounded disappointed. Only two of them, the doctor said, and Susan began to feel a glimmer of hope. Two spies I have within the fortress. It's vital that their lives be spared. You have spies inside? The commander was frowning. Why have I heard nothing of them? The doctor grasped the edges of his cloak and leaned his head forward like a bird about to peck at a worm. My dear boy, what use are spies if everyone knows of them? No, no, it was best for their existence to remain a secret. But now I'm most concerned not to be deprived of their services by some overzealous legionary. Silver shook his head and thumped the old man on the back. The doctor's affronted expression might almost have been funny, Susan thought, under different circumstances. Don't worry, I will instruct my men to spare your creatures. Good, good, the doctor said, moving towards the entrance of the room. Shall I fetch a centurion to spread their description among the men? Yes, yes, we can deal with that shortly, Silver said vaguely. Then his face brightened again. But first, let me tell you of my plans for the women. Susan felt her hope fading as the commander continued his litany of hatred and cruelty. She realised that he would never be able to live down the fact that he was the man who had allowed himself to be humiliated by a group of people he had described as unwashed barbarians. She feared that no one in Masada would be safe from his long-delayed plans for revenge. They crouched on the ground in the square at the heart of the great fortress. Ian, the nine other lieutenants and Eleazar. 
In front of Eleazar were an empty flagon and 11 potsherds, each inscribed with a name. Ian could see his own, Joab, written on one. The ochre fragment was almost square in shape, except for a diagonal chip across one corner. Ian couldn't take his eyes off it as Eleazar picked it up and placed it in the flagon along with the other pieces. The chatter and overloud laughter of the men was audible to him, but distant, irrelevant. I have only one chance in eleven of surviving this, he thought. He realised he didn't know if that was good or bad. Barbara needs me, he told himself. How will she survive without me? The sherds rattled loudly in the flagon as Eleazar shook it. Ian wondered if the Romans could hear the sound above the dull thump of their battering ram hitting the fire-weakened gates of Masada. Are you ready? Eleazar asked. Ian's eyes flicked up. Eleazar was looking at him. As ready as I'll ever be, he answered mechanically. Eleazar dipped a sun-browned fist into the flagon, then swiftly pulled it out. He left the fist closed. The other men were silent now. Stripped of their assumed nonchalance, their faces were studies in anguish. Everyone watched Eleazar's hand. With almost theatrical slowness, he opened it. Joab. A sigh that was almost a moan passed through the men. Eleazar's eyes burned into ears. Are you ready, Joab? Ian's throat was so tight, no sound could get through it. Eleazar stood and reached across the flagon to offer his hand. Ian stared at it stupidly for a moment, before realising he was being offered the lot inscribed with his name, the lot which would make him a murderer. He closed his hand around the irregular shape and jumped to his feet. For a second... He thought about running away. But where could he run to? The silence stretched on. Everyone was waiting for him to do something that he knew he couldn't do. Your sword, Joab, Eleazar said. You'll need it. Ian nodded and drew the weapon from its scabbard. He held it point down, wondering what would happen to him when Eleazar realised that he was incapable of carrying out his task. Would they draw lots again to pick someone else? But if they did, Ian would die, and there would be no one left to take care of Barbara. Slowly, he raised the sword until the tip was level with his heart. He was almost relieved when Mordecai stepped up to him. Thank God, he thought. They'll take the sword away from me and I won't have to do this terrible thing. Mordecai looked at Eleazar who gave him a sharp nod. Frowning slightly, Mordecai opened his arms, and for a dizzy moment Ian thought he was going to embrace him. Then he stepped forward, on to the point of the sword. It slid into his chest with obscene ease. For several seconds he just stood there, held upright on the blade. At last, his knees crumpled, and he fell to the ground. Adam was next. He shivered slightly as he stepped up to Ian, fear rendering his dark complexion almost ghostly. The sword didn't go in so easily this time, and the man let out a choked cry of agony as he died. Ian jerked back at the sound and realised with horror that his hands were slippery with blood. He looked round desperately for some way out of this impossible situation. The men in front of him stared back impassively, and he realised that in some strange way they were no longer here. They had taken what they considered to be a rational decision. That had been the difficult part. And now they were resigned to their fate. The faces blurred. Yokai. Isaiah. Yareth, Solomon, Daniel, not many left now, Saul, Joshua, almost over. And then 
Only Eleazar was left. Drained, Ian let his sword arm fall to his side. He watched as one tiny red dewdrop fell from the tip of the blade to the parched sand of the mountain top. Without seeing, he felt Eleazar move towards him. There was a muted thump as his boot struck the flagon which still lay between them. It tipped on its side and the lots tumbled out onto the ground. Ian stared blankly at the small pieces of pottery and then his eyes suddenly focused. One of the lots, an ochre fragment in the sand almost square in shape except for a diagonal chip across one corner. Joab. He felt the stupor in which he'd spent the last few hours lifting. Eleazar was watching him, a knowing look on his face, as Ian unclenched his fist and looked at the identical lot within it. You fixed it, Ian said incredulously. You'd already chosen me. Why? Eleazar laid a hand on Ian's shoulder in his familiar gesture. With his other hand, he gently clasped Ian's sword arm and raised it. You never gave up hope. You gave us hope. And at the end, you couldn't let it go. I knew that when I came into your room and saw that you hadn't been able to kill your woman. Ian felt a terrible panic seize him. If Eliezer had known that Barbara wasn't dead, don't worry. She's still well, Eleazar reassured him. These deaths mean nothing if they're not given freely. To kill someone who isn't ready to die is a terrible sin. He lifted his hand from Ian's shoulder and swept it round to encompass the burning fortress. For everything you've given us, I've nothing left to give you except the choice. Eleazar lifted the tip of Ian's sword to his own chest. Goodbye, Joab. The ominous silence as the ranks of the Roman legion stood before the fortress gates should have prepared Susan. Or maybe she should have been alerted by the doctor's unnatural calm. But, like the Romans themselves, she couldn't quite believe it when they'd marched unopposed through the shattered gates of Masada. The air smelt of death and the vultures were already gathering. It was a little while before they found the first bodies. The legionaries were cautious, still suspecting a trap, but Susan took one look at the doctor's face and knew that they were quite safe. Most of the bodies were inside, in the storerooms and staterooms of the fortress. That was where the women and children were to be found, they were told by an ashened-faced soldier. The doctor wouldn't allow her to go inside to look for herself, even though she was desperate to know if Barbara was among them. But he wasn't able to stop her seeing the bodies that lay in the centre of the fortress. Ten men, the leaders of the rebellion, she guessed. Silver made a sound of disgust deep in the back of his throat and kicked one of the corpses in a gesture of helpless spite. She saw some of his own men regarding him with contempt. The Jews died bravely, one of the soldiers said. It was unmistakably a rebuke. Silver spun away from the body, snarling. Find me some survivors. In all this place there must be someone left alive. He turned to the doctor. These fanatics, to kill their own children. Now you see what I've been up against all these months. The doctor's face was expressionless. Yes, indeed. This is a victory that history will never forget. The two men locked gazes, the Roman commander trying to read meaning in the doctor's ancient eyes. Their silence was only broken when a breathless centurion ran up, shouting, We found two survivors, a man and a woman. Barbara and Ian sat side by side on the bed, her hand clasped in his. She hadn't asked him what had happened outside, 
but the pressure of his grasp was such that his nails pierced the skin of her palm. They'd heard the Romans entering the fortress, heard their cries of disgust at what they'd discovered. When two legionaries found them, it was almost a relief. At least the waiting is over, Barbara thought. But when the one who'd left to fetch his commander returned, she couldn't suppress a gasp. Even wearing a tattered toga, the angular figure of the doctor was instantly recognisable. She saw Ian's eyes snap up to meet the old man's. A silent understanding passed between them. They said nothing, but Barbara noticed that the doctor had grasped his granddaughter's shoulder to prevent her leaping forward to embrace her friends. Barbara found herself smiling at the young woman's impulsiveness and suddenly realised that she hadn't smiled properly for what seemed like a very long time. Only when she'd drunk in the welcome sight of her friends did Barbara turn her attention to the other man in the room. She didn't need to see his uniform to guess that this was Flavia Silva. Whatever you thought about the doctor, he always found his way to the very top. She wondered what story he'd told this time to get there. The Roman commander was regarding them both with an expression of dreadful hunger. So, he began. Barbara shivered at the promise held in that one word. Well done, Flavia Silva, well done indeed, the doctor interrupted. You've found me my spies. Dark eyes were turned angrily on the doctor. How very convenient that the only survivors should be your people. He reached out suddenly and grasped Barbara's chin. They must know exactly what happened here. My men will... question them. The doctor bustled forward, placing himself between the commander and his captives. If there's any questioning to be done here, it will be done by me. Silver smiled mockingly at the old man. Come now, they're only Jews. How can we trust them to speak honestly? They aren't Jews! The doctor's earlier calm was quite gone. Barbara wondered, as she often did, just how in control of this situation he was. Ian was watching the old man avidly, animation having finally returned to his face. Well, at least now he seemed to care whether they lived or died. Not Jews, Silver said. He sounded politely astonished. He had no intention at all of letting them go, Barbara realised. Her earlier words to Ian about what would happen to anyone captured by the Romans played back in her mind. But the doctor wouldn't give up so easily. I can prove to you that they're good Roman citizens. He reached into his toga and drew out a gold coin. It was old, Barbara saw. She recognised the likeness of Augustus Caesar engraved on it. Jews are forbidden to bow their heads to any god but their own. He held out the coin to Ian. Kneel down before the god Caesar, my boy. Show your respect to the might of the Roman Empire. Barbara felt her whole body stiffen as Ian glared up at the doctor. She knew exactly what he was thinking. Doing as the doctor asked would be the last betrayal of his friends. The only thing left that he could do to let them down. And he wouldn't do it. The doctor seemed unperturbed by his companion's refusal. Come along, Chesterton, he said briskly. It's only a symbol. These last few weeks should have taught you all about bowing to the inevitable. He looked at Silver and Barbara wondered if the commander would understand exactly what the doctor was saying. She watched Ian's gaze flicker restlessly between the doctor, Silver, and herself. Finally, he knelt, leaned forward and bowed his head so low that his hair brushed his knees. Susan let out an audible sigh of relief, and Barbara suspected that she'd done the same. Silver looked uncertain, only half convinced. At that moment, a legionary twitched aside the curtain of the room. They found two more, he said, hidden in the cisterns below. 
the commander took one last long look at Ian, who had raised his head again and was regarding the Roman leader with cold eyes. Then he turned his back and strode from the room. The doctor too moved towards the door. Come along, come along, he said urgently. It's long past time we made our exit. Barbara began to follow him, but Ian remained kneeling, gazing fixedly at something held in his hand. Barbara saw that it was a fragment of pottery, with a name scratched on it in Hebrew. Her stomach clenched as she realised what it must be. You'd better leave that behind, Ian, she said gently. It has an appointment with an archaeologist in two thousand years' time. Ian smiled, and the lines of tension in his face eased for the first time in days. Not this one, he said. It was a gift. He closed his fist and shut his eyes for a second, then rose and left the room. <laughs>